Welcome to the Mercy Commons podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We trust that the Word of God encourages you and that the Holy Spirit empowers you. But one of the reasons that we go through a whole book is because we don't get to pick and choose the easy parts. And so um, today's one of the more difficult parts. And um, it comes after last week, which was just an amazing, lavish, open invitation to boldly and confidently enter the throne of God's grace. And immediately after that, we come to what is the third of the four warnings um, in the book of Hebrews. And... uh, and then the last section that we'll cover today is just an encouragement through persecution. So let me read from Hebrews 10, verses 26. I'm reading out of the ESV. For if we go on sinning deliberately, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries or enemies of God. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse the punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Father, we come before you and posture ourselves um, as your children, as learners. Uh, We pray that your spirit would be active as we respond to your word this morning. About, yeah, 16 years ago, that time was important because we didn't have uh, smartphones yet, and I had printed out some directions in MapQuest. Who remembers that, right? (laughs) Printing out directions in MapQuest. I was in Texas, and a friend of mine was landing at the airport. I was staying at his house, and he said to me, hey, can you come pick me up from the airport? So I printed out the directions. I got in the car, and I was driving, and I got lost. And as I was driving, I was looking to see, you know, the directions, what is happening. And I came to a roundabout, and um, I was pretty new here. I'd only been here about three or four years. And I went the wrong way around the roundabout and ended up, because the roundabout had a dual carriageway, I, I went the wrong way around the roundabout and ended up going the wrong direction in oncoming traffic, realized what had happened. So I thought the best thing to do would have been to just calmly slow down and turn around. Instead, I, I gassed it so that I could make the next turn and then saw some blue and, and, and red flashing lights. And out walks this Texas sheriff, puts his hat on, and starts walking towards the car like this, right? And I'm like, oh my goodness, I am in for it. But in the past, Karen will tell you that, that I have been pulled over many times for a variety of violations, but I have not got ticketed, okay? And, and Karen says it's because I'm charming and, and so when I want to be, you know? 
I, I think it's the accent. So I, I really, I lean into it, okay? And I, I say, he's like, you know, he starts swearing, as I can imagine, in a residential area. He's like, what on earth are you doing? Do you even understand what you're doing? He's like, put your hands on the steering wheel. He was getting intense. And so I said, I'm, uh, I, I play the yes, sir, yes, sir thing right there. Of, yes, sir, yes, sir, yes, sir. And he says, what were you thinking? I was like, look, I'm not from around here. And... You know, I'm, I'm just starting to come to terms with what it means to drive here. I'm, I'm just getting used to driving on, the, you know, on this side of the road and that side. I'm really leaning in to the ignorance part of this thing, you know. And so I can see him kind of, you know, he's, he's taken his hand off his holster, you know what I mean? He's adjusting his hat. And I can see him, he's kind of buying into this, you know. And then, and then he says, well, do you have a license? And I said, yes, I, I have a license. And I hand him my California license. <laughs> okay, in Texas, which, okay, those of you that have been, you know, California, Texas, my, I've had my license for five years, right? A legitimate United States license, whether he likes to admit it or not, right? So he looks at the license and he looks at me and he says, you've had this license for five years? I said, yes, I have. He said, are you driving around like this in California? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry. And then he proceeds, he starts writing out the ticket, and then he realizes the car isn't even in my name. It's in the name of my friend, and my friend is actually a Marine. And so it comes up um, as, um, you know, as the car of a current Marine. Uh, that's what saved me from getting the ticket, you know. And he said, is that who you're picking up? And I said, yes, I'm picking up Jimmy. He said, James Swain? Uh, Petty Officer Swain, and I said, yes, Petty Officer Swain. He says, well, then you're going to be late. You better get going, you know. So, okay, another one like that. Imagine I had said to him, that's a dumb law. Imagine I'd said to him, I think it's stupid because, you know, we drive on the left-hand side of the road. I think it's stupid that you drive on the right-hand side of the road. Imagine I said to him, I don't agree with your law, do you think I would have, that, that, that would have had traction, or do you think I would have ended up in the back of his car, right? I think the problem is, is that when, when it comes to deep issues of faith, when it comes to issues of eternity, very few people will say, I know that this is wrong, but I'm going to continue doing it anyway. Most of what we do is we say that, Actually, I don't know that Jesus, God, and the Bible is right on this. I think that this is a stupid rule or a law. Because very few of us are actually going to say, I think God is right. Um, I think that he's shown us the correct way to live our lives. He's shown us what it means to access the Father through grace by Jesus Christ. I'm just not going to do that. Most of us wouldn't do that. But what the majority of us do internally is say, I think there's a better way to do it. I think I'm going to change the law. I think it's a stupid law, and I'm going, to, um, I'm going to do it my way. And the writer of Hebrews reminds them of the severity of the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 17, it says that if you deliberately rejected God, and you chose to worship another God, and there were two or three witnesses that saw you doing that, there would be no sacrifice for sins. 
Now, I want you to understand, in the, in the Jewish faith, there were sacrifices for every kind of sin. There were sacrifices for sins, uh, sexual sins. There were sacrifices if you murdered someone. There were sacrifices if you killed someone by accident. There were sacrifices for sins that you did not know that you had committed. There were also sacrifices for sins that you probably committed, that you didn't remember that you had committed, and so you would give a sacrifice for those things. There, there were literally ways of atoning for every aspect of your life, except for this. If you deliberately go on sinning, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice. And the recipients of this letter, they cannot claim mitigation. They cannot say, we didn't, you know, we didn't understand, we didn't know. It, it's been very clearly stated for them. If anything, the writer is saying that there are aggravating circumstances to you understanding the person, nature, and work of Jesus Christ and choosing not to approach the Father through the sacrifice of Jesus. Now, where ignorance could have been used as an excuse, the writer is very clear. That cannot be the case here. This is an act of volition. This is not the outcome of immaturity. This is not giving into temptation. This is an intentional, not accidental act. And so I want to say at the outset here, He's not talking about an outsider, a seeker, or a skeptic. He's not talking about someone that's on the fringe of faith or the church, because that person can still make a decision for Jesus. This is not talking about the Christian who sins. This is not talking about someone who backslides or sometimes struggles with doubt. This is someone that has rejected the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ as the initiator and sustainer of salvation once having accepted the benefits of those. An apostate is someone that turns away from the faith. A denier is someone that says, no, I am not aligning myself to this. And both of those are a refusal of the grace of God. So in Hebrews, he, he says, well, what does this refusal look like? And it looks like three things. He says, you trample the Son of God underfoot. I mean, in modern-day vernacular, it would be like you literally are treating him like dirt. You are walking, trampling on the Son of God. How do we do that? We reject his divinity, we reject his humanity, we reject his authority, and most cults are a combination of the rejection of one of three of those things, either Jesus' humanity, his divinity, or his authority. And we trample the Son of God underfoot when we reject the Son what does Jesus say? When we reject the Son, we reject the Father. Because ultimately, he who rejects the Son rejects the Father. Because God has given him all authority, incarnate Jesus. He is the way, not one of the ways. He is the way. We refuse the grace of God when we profane the blood of the covenant. And the writer of Hebrews has, has told us this is not the blood of bulls and goats. This is the blood of the Son of God. This is Jesus' blood. And we profane that when we don't understand the intensity and the purity of it, we don't understand the expense of it, but we profane it when the idea of shedding blood for the complexity of the human sin condition, we treat that with contempt and disdain. Because this is just too brutal for us to wrap our minds around. The necessity of a brutal solution, which means the shedding of someone's blood, 
for a brutal problem, our own sin is denied. And, and we deny it by this way. We are not sinful people uh, that need the penalty of our sins paid for by the blood of Jesus. We are basically good people that have just gone astray a little and need a little bit of love to correct us on the path. And if that's what we believe, then the idea of shedding of innocent blood is barbaric. and makes no sense. Because if we don't understand the brutality of the sin that we have committed against God, we won't understand why it took such a brutal um, solution for us to be able to confidently enter that throne of grace. We trample the Son of God underfoot, we profane the blood of the covenant, and we outrage the spirit of grace. I want you to think about that statement. We outrage the spirit of grace. Now, most of you will know that Karen is one of the most gracious people you will ever meet. So when she is outraged, there's a dissonance in your mind that is really hard to wrap your mind around. And when Scripture says you outrage the spirit of grace, we're, we're like, I don't really understand how the gracious, kind spirit of God that is shed abroad in our hearts to be able to understand the grace and mercy that Jesus has given us. How do we outrage him? Well, we reject him. In Acts 5, there's a story of a man and a woman who lied to the Holy Spirit. They died, literally in that moment. Why? Because the Spirit of grace, like the Son, like the Father, our God, the triune God, we outrage the Spirit of grace. There's, there's a sense that the vehicle that God has given us, this deposit of grace that enables us to live victoriously and purposefully, that guarantees our inheritance on the day of judgment, we are saying no. That's when Jesus says there is only one sin that is unforgivable, the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. This is what he's talking about. The rejection of the way of God to God is what is unforgivable because we have stepped in that and we've said no, thank you. I'm not accepting that this is the way. That's what that means. The Trinitarian nature of salvation means that we have rejected the vehicles through which salvation is appropriated, which means the way in which we have gained it. It is the means through which our salvation is empowered to be able to live a life worthy of the call of God. And it is the Spirit that protects us. And Paul tells us that the Spirit in, in you is your deposit until that day of redemption, sealed with the Spirit. That what God has done in you cannot be taken away because the Spirit has sealed that in you. Man, these are stark and bold statements that this writer is making. They should shake us. They should cause us to pause. Some of you might even be angry. Some of you might, might have trigger memories of legalism or abuse or fear. But as a follower, I want you to remember that this comes in a context. That literally the verses before say that we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. Our confidence is in Jesus. You're welcomed into the throne. Judgment as a Christ follower is something you should look forward to. But there will be a judgment. 
And there will be a judgment for those that reject the Spirit of grace, for those that trample the Son of God underfoot, for those that profane the blood of the covenant, the new covenant that Jesus said. Jeremiah said that Jesus would give us new hearts, that Jesus said, this is the new covenant. We're saying, no, no, no. We are placing ourselves in that position of judgment. So how do we end up either denying Jesus, walking away from Jesus? I would say that when doubt becomes deconstruction and then deconstruction becomes deconversion, we end up in denial. I know, it's a lot of Ds. I didn't plan it that way. Now I want to say this, doubting does not disqualify you. This is critical for us to understand. What the writer is talking about here, what this section of Scripture is talking about is, is not seasons of doubt, seasons of darkness, and seasons of despair. I know that, that many of you might look at me and, and say, well, you just don't know. It, it's your job not to doubt. Well, it isn't, you know. And in fact, my call has made it incredibly difficult for me to walk through doubt with honesty. There's, there's the sense in which, Nick, I, have you ever doubted the existence of God? Yeah, I have. In a greater way than maybe you have, because I've given my life for this. This is all I do. And so when doubt begins to creep into my mind, it affects every aspect of who I am. I don't get to go to another job and build tables and say, well, at least that area of my life is kind of satisfied. When doubt begins to creep into my mind, it infects everything. And it's very hard for me because who do I share that with? Do I share it with people that God has given me the charge to lead and say, I I don't really know that I believe in this Jesus stuff anymore? Yeah, that'd be a great way to grow a church. (laughs) Our pastor is so honest. No, I need to find that space and go before my father and say, I don't even know that you're there. But this is what I see in doubt that does not turn to despair, deconstructionism, and denial. Is is when people doubt, they take it, their doubt to God. We, We read in Psalm 77, will the Lord reject me forever? Will he never be pleased again? Has his faithful love come to a complete end? Is his promise over for future generations? Has God forgotten how to be gracious? Has he angrily stopped up his compassion? And that's pretty honest. That's pretty authentic. But it's also directed to God. And I think part of our challenge is that that when we doubt, we turn inward on ourselves. Instead, Instead of opening up to God and saying, I don't know where you are. I don't know what's going on, and this darkness is starting to creep into my soul. The doubt that we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, it has an anchor, and I'll explain that. I want to say this, that God is not wounded or angry or upset if you doubt him. He cannot be because he's, he's, he's God. Rebellion is different to doubt. Open, honest rebellion is different to honest doubt. I get upset. If Karen thinks I can't do something, I get upset. 
You know what I mean? I feel like a 12-year-old who's like on the sports field wondering if she's watching to see me do this great thing. You know what I mean? I still, I want to impress her, you know? And so, and so we're not used to the idea of doubting someone and their love and affection for us still being 100% completely intact. Because when Karen doubts my ability to do something, I begin to doubt her love and affection towards me. But when we doubt, when it comes to God, there is no barrier of love and affection. There's actually his open arms saying, son, I know it's hard. I know it's hard. Come, let's talk. That's what, that's what the Psalms is all about. I mean, the New Testament. When Jesus, when Jesus goes off, and he goes off a lot, okay? When Jesus goes off and he says, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. Then Peter and the disciples come to him and they say, you know what, guys were a little annoyed by your cannibalism kind of reference. And it says, and many left him. And then we would expect Jesus to say, oh, Peter, that's hard. I'm so sorry you feel that way. It must be difficult. What, what does Jesus say to, to Peter? Do you want to go too? Do you want to go too? And, and Peter says, with so much faith, where else can we go? <laughs> I'm sure if he had even a smidgen of a choice, that he would have gone somewhere else. Jesus says, do you want to go to? He says, where else can we go? Only you have the words of eternal life. I'm sure in that moment of confusion, he was saying that more as a faith statement than a statement of reality. And also, we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Translation, I have no idea what just happened right here. I don't know why you're saying such mean things. They make no sense to me. But I know who you are because I've walked with you and I've seen you do some amazing things. And because of that, I've got nowhere else to go. I know you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And sometimes, guys, that's all it takes. We're not expected to solve this difficulty or darkness or despair. All we can say is, where else do we go? You have the words of eternal life. The father with an ep epileptic child who comes to Jesus and says, if you, if you will, you can make him better. And, and Jesus says, if I will, do you believe that I can? And the father says, I believe, but help me in my unbelief. There's that, that honest doubting that actually Jesus responds to. Alan preached on Peter denying Jesus and being restored. The disciples, when the women come, when the women come back and say, Jesus is risen, and they were full of faith and said, that's awesome, let's go. What happened? They did not believe them. They went fishing. At, when, when Jesus is raised from the dead, and he starts teaching his disciples about the kingdom, and he gives them a commission. This is one of my favorite verses about doubt. He gives them the commission, go out into all the world. And then it says, and some doubted. But they went out anyway. That's a profound verse for me. This is not about doubt. Were they, I, I want to encourage you guys, keep talking to God, not about Him. Keep talking to Him in an honest, naked way. Keep talking to Him. I do want to say that the scandals and abuse in church leadership, your personal pain, your unmet expectations, 
these create a perfect environment for doubting to begin to move to deconstruction and denial. And I want to say that the, the church has not been the, yeah, the church has often been the worst enemy of Jesus. But I want to say, as you take those things to him, as you bring them to him, and as you say, God, are you seeing all these things? I don't know what to do. I don't know where to go, but I know that you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. We are anchored. What is deconstructionism? Maybe some of you have heard the term. Maybe some of you are afraid of the term. But if we use the term for what it was meant to be used by, Michael Kruger says that it simply means that we should ask hard questions about whether the version of Christianity we are following is consistent with the Scriptures or with the historic Christian beliefs through the centuries. I'm like, 100%. We should be doing that. Consistently doing that. The problem is, is that we try this deconstructionism without any anchor or guide that ultimately leads us to deconversion and denial. Now, some of you know that um, I scuba dive. Some of you know that I wreck dive. There's, there are cave dives, and there's a really cool thing called a glow rope. Can any of you see where it is? Okay, this is the difference between life and death. This little rope right here. I know you guys are going to laugh because I'm going to say in Florida. But it, it did happen in Florida. I don't, I don't know what to tell you. A father and son go and they do some recreational diving. Two fathers, two sons. One of them follows the rope. One of them thinks... We're running out of air, we've got to let go of the rope because I think we can see just an easier way to go up. Both of them died. The difference between doubt, deconstructionism, and denial is that we follow the anchor and rope that God has given us. If we don't do that and we think that we know a better way to freedom, we actually are placing ourselves in massive danger. Now, I know that those guys felt like if we continue with this rope, we might not have enough air to get there. They assumed that their way was a shortcut. It was not. It was not a shortcut. The guide rope is there for a reason. It is literally an anchor for life. Without the guide rope, what you're doing is you're not conforming your beliefs to Scripture. Especially if scripture seems to go against your culture, your education, especially if it's unsettling to your nature or personality or political persuasion, and you begin dismantling beliefs that you find subjectively oppressive or morally dubious. That's what happens when we try this without the guide rope. And I want to say this, nobility and sincerity are not enough. There are noble people on this journey that are actually wanting a pure form of the Christian faith. They're sincere, intelligent, charming. They're not belligerent. They don't have an ax to grind. They're not mean. They love people. They love Jesus. They love justice. And they want to see the beatitudes that Jesus preached about fulfilled in the way in which we see the church operating. But oftentimes, those people draw a pretty hard line between the beatitudes and the hard, difficult, and exclusive claims that Jesus himself said. 
Oftentimes, there's this um, weird kind of division between the Old Testament, which we don't care about at all because that was way too brutal and we don't understand that at all. We, we draw this deviation between Jesus of the Gospels and then the New Testament church, and I am just focused on that. And we don't understand that the Scriptures are one complete story about Jesus from start to finish. We've got to be careful. Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his book, Life Together, which talks about the impossibility of growing as a disciple of Jesus unless you are in community, says this. The Christian needs another Christian who speaks God's word to him. He needs him again and again when he becomes uncertain and discouraged. For by himself, he cannot help himself without belying the truth. He needs his brother man as a bearer and proclaimer of the divine word of salvation. Without a commitment to reconstruct around the immovable foundation of Jesus Christ as the cornerstone, as revealed in the scriptures, deconversion will always follow deconstruction. Deconversion is just a nice way of saying denial, because that's actually more accurate. Now, the tricky thing about deconversion is this. Deconversionists may not look like they've deconverted or rejected the faith or denied the faith. Sometimes what it'll look like is a a faithfulness to a 2.0 version of Christianity. And this 2.0 version of Christianity is based on either going outside of the boundaries of Scripture or a radical interpretation of Scripture. And the writer of Hebrew parallels our current situation with the situation of the Hebrews, where the Hebrews are not claiming that they, they're not saying we don't want to worship Yahweh, we want to worship Him, just not in the way that Jesus has shown us to worship Him. And so oftentimes, when people are in denial or deconversion, they don't even realize that they are because they're trying to hold on to a faith that they have constructed because they've let go of the guide rope. And I would say that probably one of the biggest areas where, um, where people have difficulty and deconstruct or refuse God's grace is this idea of judgment. I mean, verse 27 but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. This is hard. I mean, but, but try as you may to jettison the reality of Judgment Day by claiming it's barbaric, unloving, and unmerciful. It's a massive vein that runs from Genesis through to Revelation. It's in all of Scripture. Jesus talks about it often, himself talks about the Day of Judgment, and we cannot ignore it. N.T. Wright says this, it is absolutely basic to both Judaism and Christianity that there will come a time when the living God, the creator, will bring his just and wise rule to bear fully and finally on the world. Those who willfully stand out against his rule live a life which scorns the standards which emerge from creation itself and in God's good intention for it and spurn all attempts at reformation or renewal will face a punishment of destruction. That's true. We cannot deny or recreate Judgment Day. Now the trick these days is to actually say, well, Judgment Day is not going to be a judgment at all. 
But it's going to be a further opportunity for the grace of God to be revealed where love wins and everyone is in relationship with God. How just is that judgment day if that is the case? Where is the justice in that? N.T. Wright gives us some other reasons why we should look forward to judgment. It sounds weird, right? When we, when we talk about judgment, don't judge me. Only God can judge me. Right, Tupac? Was it Tupac? It was, right? Only God. Are you, uh, my, my, my first reaction to that is, are you sure? Are you sure that's what you want? Are you sure you want God to judge you? But we that have confidence to enter the throne of grace through the blood of Jesus, through his body, we can look forward to judgment because it is an expression of God's love. What? Because its ultimate aim is the well-being of creation and all humanity. Because where the deconversionist denies, they, they cannot reconcile the idea of love and judgment. But judgment is an aspect of God's love. I will not let this go on. This will end. And that is how I'm going to express my love. It's, a, it's an aspect of restoration and renewal. A judgment is not solely about condemnation, but it's also about the restoration and renewal of all things. It is the culmination of God's plan to set all things right for a new creation. Judgment gives us hope for the pain that we have endured, where people have not repented or not apologized or even understood that they have harmed us by their actions. We get to look forward to restoration and renewal. We get to look forward to a pure form of justice that addresses and rectifies all the injustices that we see around us in the world. Evil is ended. Now, there are countless stories of politically motivated judges, of bad judges, of judges that have let criminals go, of, of judges that have put innocent men in prison. This will be a pure justice, not like the judgments that we encounter every day when we walk this earth. Lastly, it is the joy of real accountability. It's both a joy and a little bit the stress of real accountability because you know what judgment means? It means that every individual will give an account for what they've done in their body, in their lives. Scripture tells us this. Every single thing we've done. This accountability serves a, a positive purpose because it means that what we do in this body and in this world matters. How we respond matters. The decisions we make or don't make, they matter. I said to a friend of mine, Last week, nothing is ever forgotten. It will either be judged or forgiven. God doesn't forget. Sometimes in our relationships, we, we, we reach this place of like, it's kind of too late to repent. And so I'm hoping that she's forgotten about it. And we're just going to tiptoe around a little bit. Um, and then sometimes it works because she has forgotten about it. God will not forget anything. Now, I know Scripture says that, that you know, He has forgotten our sins. That, that doesn't mean forgotten in the traditional sense. It means that He chooses not to remember, to hold those against us. 
And so everything that has happened to you will be judged. Every pain that people don't even recognize or know that has happened to you will be redeemed in that moment. God's judgment shows his love, his restoration, his renewal, his purity, and the fact that there will be accountability. And let's be honest, that makes us nervous. It makes us difficult to actually be able to say, this God of love will come one day to judge the living and the dead. But for us, those of us that have walked into the kingdom, that have said, God, your throne of grace, you've done everything. I confidently, not arrogantly come and sit and I'm seated here and I receive all these benefits. How can I say no? How can I say no? He continues in verse 32 and he talks about the hidden benefits of persecution. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. You had compassion on those who were in prison and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Later on, he he talks about that we're looking for a city whose foundation and maker is God. Is that forget your property here. This is what you're looking for. You're looking for your kingdom when he comes. Therefore, Do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. The Old Testament says, yet for a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous ones shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed. And what he's doing is he's, he's warning them, but he's saying is if you've made that confession of faith in Jesus, even if in your time of doubt, even if your time of darkness and despair, you start to deconstruct and say, God, is this really the way you want me to live? Is this really the community that you want me to be part of as I, as I represent you? And I'm, I'm holding on to the guide rope. We can say this, that he says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. How can we do that? Because in chapter 6, he he tells us. Because chapter 6 is a very similar portion of Scripture. And ultimately, he tells us how we can do that because there is an anchor that goes behind the veil. That guide rope is connected to the holiest of places. And Jesus is our anchor. Our confidence is not that there won't be hardship, but that the testing of our faith will show how faithful Jesus is. And I will say, these days, it's not so much persecution that would lead people to deny Jesus, but it's comfort that would lead people to deny Jesus. It's interesting that that the writer of Hebrews says, in the former days, theologians speculate that in the former days, in the early days of the Hebrews coming to faith, In the early days, there was a sense of severe, specific persecution, but not anymore, that this persecution had become more kind of a a friendship, isolation, we don't want to hang out with you persecution. That's why there are hidden benefits to persecution. Anyone who faces persecution accesses the grace of God to ensure 
that they can endure because God will help you to endure, to ensure that you can do his will because it pleases him as you do his will, to live by faith and not shrink back. Anyone that endures the hidden benefit of persecution is reminded that this is not our day. Our day is coming. Anyone who endures persecution is reminded that this is not our home. We are aliens and sojourners. Anyone that endures persecution understands that we have actually become part of the body of Jesus in the sense that he was persecuted for us. Band, you can come up. This has been heavy. Talk about judgment, talk about grace, talk about love, doubt, despair. There's some truths we need to look at. There will be a judgment day. There will be the opening of the book of life. And we'll stand there before the throne to hear how our names read out of the book of life. There will be a separation. There will be a testing of our works. And Paul says that our works will be tested as through the fire, that anything that we have built on the foundation of Jesus Christ, if we build it with wood, hay, and stubble, that will be burnt. You will be saved as through the fire, but that will be burnt. There's a testing of our works. But there's also an invitation to glory. For those that persevere through the grace of God, for those that endure, for those that do his will, for those who live by faith and do not shrink back. You know, we've said this, we're called Mercy Commons. One of the reasons we're called Mercy Commons is because we say mercy triumphs over judgment, and it does. Mercy triumphs over judgment only because of the blood of Jesus. That's the only reason mercy triumphs over judgment. It's not a, it's not a nice little catchphrase. Mercy triumphs over judgment because Jesus died and shed his blood for me. That's why mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment only when the blood of Jesus is applied only when submission to Jesus is fulfilled through the Spirit of God that changes our desires, our goals, our behaviors, and our attitudes to those that glorify God and cause others to say, take me to your God. That's when mercy triumphs over judgment. Today, you can make a clear stand. Maybe you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Maybe you've been around church for a long time. Maybe you have even deconstructed, walked away. But today, the reality of God's love in the midst of the understanding that there will be a judgment is, is calling you forth. Jesus said, those that I have are the ones that the Spirit brings me, that Jesus is, is calling. The Spirit of God may be calling you. Don't reject the Spirit of God. For those of us that know that we are comfortably seated in the throne of grace because of Jesus, maybe you're going through times of doubt, despair. Maybe you're even in that place of, of deconstruction close to denial. Maybe you've let go that rope. Today is an opportunity for you to say, Jesus, anchor of my soul, guide me through this darkness. Maybe you just need a strength to endure or to do his will. Maybe you know that you want to persevere. 
you know that this is your desire, but you don't know that you can, to actually say, Spirit of God, come and help me. Strengthen me. I want to stand firm, and I know you're able to help me. One of my favorite hymns is In Christ Alone for a number of different reasons. But Stuart Getty wrote In Christ Alone. It sounds like it's written in the 1800s. It's not. It's written in the 2000s. But this is what he says. He said that I struggled to understand and fully embrace my faith amidst an unbelieving universalist and multi-religious culture. It was a journey to believe in the uniqueness of Christ, the scriptures and the gospel story. By the time I came through this, however, my faith was stronger. And I really wanted to write songs for the church that brought the full, rich, life-giving story of the gospel into believers' hearts and minds. This is a, a man who's written some amazing, powerful, theologically rooted hymns whose journey didn't start with a sense of here is Jesus, I believe. It started with doubt and despair. The third verse two, the song says, no guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home here in the power of Christ I stand I've asked Christy to sing that verse over us just let that wash over you because it's his power that will enable you to stand why would you not want to accept his power for your life see other people we go to like podcasts or we go to books or um, experts on those topics which aren't bad things but I think what we should do first is come to community people that know us people who know where we have struggles people that want to challenge us and know where we need to be challenged I think that's where we need to go first um, yeah as we as we bring those things before God as well So we're going to do that. We're going to 
do the first and most important thing, and that is bring ourselves to the table of grace. Whenever we have questions about the nature of life, the universe, and everything, we look at the broken body of Jesus, his shed blood. That is our first port of call. Our second port of call, as Mitch reminds us, is that we are part of a body of believers. We want to encourage and strengthen each other. And so to my left, your right, there's going to be some leaders that would love to pray with you, to stand with you. Even if all you're saying is, man, this is a difficult time for me. Please pray that I would endure, that I would not shrink back, that I would live by faith. We would love to do that for you. Father, we stand before you in faith. We refuse to trample the Son of God underfoot. We refuse to renounce the covenant. We refuse to stand against the Spirit of grace. This is an act of faith where we say, God, we want to stand firm. We want to persevere and endure. And we know the only way we can because we are anchored to you. As we take your broken body that signifies that veil torn, we take it and stand on your faith and your work, Lord Jesus. take what represents the blood of a new covenant freely given to pay the penalty of our sins that as we take this in remembrance of you we know that on that great day those that have taken the body and the, and the blood of Jesus Christ in faith have confessed him as Lord and Savior will see their names written in the Lamb's book of life that we will hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. And we do this only because of your blood shed for us. I want to thank you for being here, Mercy Commons. I want to encourage you, if you're feeling in a place of doubt or despair, encourage you to just receive help in your time of need from brothers and sisters that have walked through that. But I also want to encourage you, if for the first time you want to place your faith in Jesus, to come and to speak to me. It's as simple as confessing Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Come and chat. The rest of us, let's go be the church. See you next week. Thank you for listening to the Mercy Commons podcast. If you enjoyed today's content, please rate us and hit subscribe. And if you'd like to learn more about us, visit our website at mercycommons.church.